There are just a few reflections I would like to offer that may be useful in beginning a retreat, in undertaking this time of silence and solitude. I think one of those reflections that's always important for us as we make this transition is the reflection on contentment. If you go back to the earliest times when the Buddha lived and people went to join him in, in the homeless life, if you reflect back on those times, you could imagine that that were, was a, probably a very courageous step. India at that time, no doubt, being a place and a time where people lived with pretty ongoing poverty and hardship and affliction and to give up the little that they had to enter this life of complete unknowing, this complete, in a way, insecurity, would be an enormous step, just as it is today for people. And when people joined the Buddha in that life, one of the first instructions or reflections that he offered was to cultivate this sense of contentment. He actually referred to it as the four great contentments. To be content with whatever robes they were offered, whether shabby or silk, you know, to be content with whatever food they were offered, or even if they were never offered any food at all, to be content with whatever lodging they were offered, or even if none was offered. And to find contentment within the cultivation of the skillful and the liberating and the relinquishing of the unhelpful and the confusing. And I think the Buddha puts so much emphasis upon these, this inner cultivation for a number of different reasons. Certainly that quality of inner contentment made the difference, was what made the difference between that life of insecurity, of unknowing, being a life of deprivation, um, leading to anxiety, or a life where there was a discovery of an inner happiness, an inner joy, an inner refuge. But then the other part of this teaching of contentment was actually more profound. And it was to do with questioning how much permission is given to the world of conditions being the gatekeeper of our happiness and freedom. And I think that is a fairly timeless question for all of us how many times we, we might find ourselves having the conversation with ourselves, you know, if I had this, then I'd be really happy. You know, if I, if I had the right cushion, if I had the right, the different body, if I had a different mind, if I had the different this, that, and the other, then I would be happy. How, how easy it is in our lives to externalize the sources of joy and suffering. I think that teaching of contentment was really inviting a reversal of that externalization of happiness and inviting the question of how much we tie our sense of well-being to conditions that we mostly cannot control, mostly cannot grasp, 
and yet somehow live under this spell that they hold the power to make us happy or unhappy. So the whole direction of the Buddha's teaching was really this emphasis at the sources of joy and the sources of sorrow live within our own hearts. This is not to say that there is no affliction in the world. Of course, there is much affliction in the world. But how we embrace that, how we meet that, lies within our own hearts. Whether we offer to those that world of conditions the power to make us happy or unhappy is a path of, of cultivating, actually, unhappiness. So cultivating this quality of contentment has much to do with calming agitation, with calming anxiety, uh, with calming clinging, with calming worry and planning. It is really taking our seat again and again and finding our feet again and again in how is this moment being met? How is this present moment actually being embraced, being met? This, I think, is a very useful contemplation, a very useful reflection, both in retreats and in our lives. It falls within what the Buddha referred to as as the wholesome, the skillful, the liberating understandings. When you look at the early teachings, there's, there's two words that feature quite strongly and quite repetitively. One word in Pali is the word bhavana, and the other word in Pali is the word kusala. Now, this word bhavana, I think, is, is, is very central to what we're doing here because bhavana translates as to cultivate, to bring into being. But it really refers to the whole path of meditative deepening, of meditative cultivation. It doesn't matter what technique, what style we use. There is this sense of cultivating, of bringing into being. What is it that is being brought into being? What is it that is being cultivated? All of the kusala or the wholesome, this word is sometimes translated as noble or ennobling. This being brought into being is every, all of the ennobling qualities that bring dignity, authenticity, depth, compassion, understanding, empathy, awakening. So this path then is presented not as something that is very dynamic. It is something that is very engaged. It is an investigation, a, a, an investigation of what is being brought into being in this moment. And I, I think within this there is the acknowledgement that we are always practicing something. You know, there is never a moment that we are not practicing something. And there is never a moment where we are not bringing something into being. And I think this practice or this teaching is a way of asking the question, what are we practicing in this moment? And we see, you know, the spectrum. Sometimes we are practicing calmness. We're practicing awakening. We're practicing kindness. 
And we see that when we're not consciously cultivating or practicing, then we are more often unconsciously practicing some of the tired old habits and reactivity of a lifetime that we are all too familiar with. So, of course, the whole practice begins with that cultivation of mindfulness. To know. To know what is being cultivated. To know what is being practiced in this moment. Now, this word kusala or ennobling, I, I think it's not necessarily a word that I find many people in the West have this immediate warmth of response to. Mostly we hear the word noble or ennobling, and, and we might think, well, that sounds very pretentious. You know, I'm just sitting around here in my blanket, you know, just trying to find a breath or two or, you know, just get through my day or, you know, just not be lost in fantasy every moment. It can sound very big, very overstated, very pretentious. And yet, if you look at the discourses, of course, this word ennobling is used all over and over again. We talk about the four ennobling truths, the ennobling eightfold path. Everything, the whole way in which the path has a direction. And it has a direction of first exploring, investigating, but naturalizing and bringing to fruition all of the qualities of heart and mind that lead to dignity and poise and respect and freedom. Now, my sense is that the great genius of the Buddha, something that I so appreciate, is that the great genius of the Buddha is he always built this teaching upon what we, on some level, intuitively know or have glimpsed in our lives. When the Buddha uses these words, when this teaching uses these words of kindness, of compassion, of peace, of stillness, of wakefulness, and we listen to those words, and on some level there is a kind of inner resonance. Because he's not using concepts that are completely abstract or foreign or alien to us. What we do see is that we have all glimpsed in our lives, no matter how briefly, the landscape of kindness. We've all known moments of compassion, moments of generosity, whether offered or received. We've all glimpsed moments of happiness, of peace, of intimacy. And perhaps we have touched in our lives upon much greater moments of stillness, the intuition of spaciousness, of vastness, of wonder. And I think it is those glimpses in our lives actually that often brings us to this path because there's almost a sense that this is the possibility of our hearts. This is the possibility of our consciousness. And somehow that they inspire us to to really examine whether these moments and these qualities really have to be just accidental moments that we stumble upon every now and then, or whether these moments are pointing towards qualities of heart that can be consciously cultivated and brought into being and naturalized and brought to 
a quality of a quality of unshakability. Personally, I think one of the great benefits of this teaching, this path, is that it does take this sense of bewilderment and confusion out of our lives. Because just as we might encounter these wondrous moments, delightful moments, lovely moments of peace, and feel that they are a kind of accident, so too can we feel that confusion and fear and anxiety are just accidents. We don't know how we ended up there. We don't know how they happened. And the whole work, we might say, the whole work of mindfulness, the whole work of wakefulness, is to take the bewilderment out and to know this is not an accident. You know, There are conditions, things that are practiced often unconsciously, that lead us to fall into the holes of of despair or feeling disheartened or anxiety or fear or anger. But there is also a process and a path that is really brought also into the cultivation of everything that is lovely and wholesome. Now, I emphasize that sense of cultivation because I, I, I do see in many people's practice in our culture that there is often that perhaps an over, over expertise in focusing on the difficult and the problematic. It's not to say, you know, that we just then pretend that there is no difficulty. That's not the recommendation. But somehow we tend to be more drawn to noticing that which is imperfect than noticing that which is well. Noticing that which is lovely. And it's almost, it can be a kind of forgetfulness of bringing that into our practice. And it's not in any way a denial of the difficult or the obstacles that we encounter. But it is knowing that our capacity to meet, explore, investigate the difficult is made much easier and possible in an inner climate of ease, of spaciousness, of kindness. This practice is not attitudinally neutral. You know, the whole stream, the whole attitudinal sense within this practice goes back to the earliest teachings of the Buddha where he speaks about kindness befriending as being the core attitude of transformation that willingness to bring kindness and befriending, and not just to people, but to all of the events that arise in a single day, all of the experiences that arise in a single day. How much are they embraced? How much are they uh, met with this underlying attitude of non-refusal, of kindness, of welcome, and befriending. I think sometimes in not noticing that which is lovely or even not cultivating that which is really healing and lovely and liberating, there can be a tendency to think that, you know, after I get over the obstacles, after I get over the hindrances, after I fix this or find an answer to this, after I work this out, then there will be kindness. 
you know, or then there will be a sense of patience and ease and spaciousness. But that tends to be more postponement practice. And I think it, it is often a kind of attitude that keeps us very entangled in this, this kind of argument or this struggle or this working with the difficult. And as I say, it's not at all denying the fact that the reality, that there are obstacles and afflictions that arise. But how they are met is absolutely crucial. You know, and I think there is something so important and so valuable in reminding ourselves again and again to cultivate our capacity for kindness, our capacity for generosity, knowing that the seeds of kindness, the seeds of generosity, the seeds of patience really do lie within our own hearts and minds. And they can be cultivated. They can be remembered. And, you know, part of the translation of mindfulness or sati is remembering. And it's not only remembering to be present. I think it's very, very much remembering what it is that we most deeply value what it is that brings us to the path, what it is that inspires us, what it is that we sense to be worth cultivating, worth treasuring. We do, coming back to one of those central statements of the Buddha, that the sources of joy, the sources of struggle, lie within our own heart. It is so important to remember this. I mean, in our lives, we will all have our own measure of adversity. It's part of our universal story. But we see how much sorrow is being born of meeting with adversity, with judgment or impatience or blame or striving or dismissiveness. It is really those two layers of struggle, of of difficulty, isn't it? There is the first layer of that which we meet and the second layer of the argument with that which we meet. This shouldn't be happening. This shouldn't be going on. How do I get rid of this? That second layer is the one that is so optional. And it's in that second layer of resistance or blame that Kindness needs to be remembered as much as mindfulness needs to be remembered. There's something so critical about setting kindness as being the foundation of our hearts. Because that remembering, I think, of kindness and mindfulness is a movement from Sometimes what I refer to as a way of framing the practice, a movement from choicelessness to choice to a different dimension of choicelessness. And I think that the first dimension of choicelessness that I think of, it's where our lives just feel, and our hearts just feel governed by impulse and reactivity, and we feel like there's no other possibility except to storm through this life, (laughs) filled with anxiety or rage or whatever, then we begin, a friend of mine calls it unconscious incompetence. 
We just don't know what's going on and we don't feel there's any possibilities of response. Basically, we just feel to be governed. There's a movement in into what I think of as a different dimension of choice where through listening to the teaching, through our practice, we may begin to sense the possibility of walking different pathways other than the habitually governed, other than the impulsive. That there may be the possibility of kindness in relation to aversion. There may be the possibility of patience in relation to impatience. There may be the possibility of bringing more wakefulness in relationship to moments of confusion. Just simply that opening into that sense of possibility. It is really a lot of where this path engages with life, with ourselves. But there can be a difficult place in that place of choice. And my, my colleague refers to it as conscious incompetence. When we actually are mindful enough to know what we're doing, but we're still doing it. You know, we're mindful enough to know that obsession is really unhelpful, but we're still obsessing. You know, we're mindful enough to know that aversion rarely has good outcomes, but we're still doing it. So there's a place in that kind of conscious incompetence where there's sufficient mindfulness to illuminate the moment, but perhaps not always the roundedness of the whole path of wise effort, of wise investigation, to actually step out of the habit pattern. It's a difficult place in practice, but I think there's some inevitability about it. But it takes a lot of patience, a lot of kindness to actually sustain, sustain intentionality, sustain mindfulness in those moments rather than falling into the second layer of judgment or blame. And then what we do see that what we practice grows, that what we practice deepens. I mean, if we if we continue to practice confusion, it gets more confused. But this is also true with the liberating and the wholesome. In practicing calmness, in practicing inquiry, in practicing kindness, it also deepens. And we, we see this movement into what I, I think of as a different level of choicelessness. Where, where somehow, you know, we, we have a kind of mature dissatisfaction with that which is unhelpful to our own well-being or the well-being of others. That we lose interest in engaging with aversion or engaging in blame or engaging in confusion. That somehow there starts to be a naturalization, an authenticity to calmness, to kindness, to poise, to equanimity. It's a movement into a different quality of choicelessness. So we have these days of practice, and some of you many days, some of you less days before us. And sometimes I think the size of the task can seem huge, you know, that there is so much to meet and so much to cultivate and so much to relinquish. It is very important to remember that the size of the task is only ever equal to the size of the moment that this is the moment we're being asked to meet. Just this moment. Just this moment. To orient ourselves in that way, I think, is where we find patience. 
we find no patience and no kindness in the phrases, I always do this. <laughs> I'm always like this. I always react like this. The great saboteurs of mindfulness. Huh? The size of the task being equal to the size of the moment and being mindful moment to moment of what is being practiced. What are we practicing? What is being cultivated in this moment? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.